ESPN Audio and SC Featured presents a 16-episode podcast, Pin Kings. It's the story of two All-American high school wrestlers, teammates, and friends who ultimately ended up on the opposite sides of the war on drugs. Pin Kings is for mature audiences. Welcome to Episode 15, Washed and Dried. You could hit stash houses where people would leave the ones because they didn't want to carry a $1 bill. This is David Tinsley, a former DEA agent. There's a well-known case in Miami where a guy had a little over a million $1 bills and nobody would take them because he would call down, when we say call down south, he would call Columbia and say, I'm sitting on two hands, which would mean a million dollars of ones, and nobody wants them. And the guy would literally say, well, burn them, do something, get rid of them. Nobody wants ones, because what are you going to do? How are you going to buy a Ferrari with 150,000 ones? Kevin and Alex were best friends. Champion wrestling buddies. The heydays of Miami. Alex Tecubis was clearly a kingpin. It's a, it's a tragic story. The less you know, the more you leave. I wanted to take out the biggest drug dealers. If they were catching me, he's going away for the rest of his life. If they don't kill him when they try to capture him. Could you imagine if Kevin has to shoot Alex? He's a sworn federal agent for a drug enforcement agency. Evil goes to jail, or evil ends up dead. Welcome to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. My name is John Fish. I'm a producer for ESPN. And I'm Brett Forrest, a senior writer at ESPN The Magazine. We haven't heard from Kevin Pedersen in a while. What's he doing? Kevin has joined the DEA, and he finds that it really suits him. And so do those around him. Here's Dom Gorey, a friend and former wrestling teammate. I was sitting with him one time at a wrestling match. And uh, it was a reunion kind of thing. And he had a couple radios on. And he had a couple weapons in his ankles. And it was just clear to me that this is what he was made for. Kevin displayed real talent in his work. The central part of his work was getting bad guys to cooperate. Human relations. He won the highest award in DEA for investigations, Administrator's Award of Honor. This is David Tinsley, Kevin's boss at the DEA. Kevin Pedersen was an outstanding DEA agent because he was committed. He had the passion to do the job. A lot of people that get into the drug trade did it out of desperation or they were forced into it or couriers, family members were often kidnapped. The point of this is that when we had someone like that and, and we were interviewing them, you're trying to convince them to work for you. You're trying to convince them to trust you. It takes a very special agent that can, what we call, reach into the chest of the bad guy and pull out the good parts of him and put it on the table. You can have the worst guy on the planet and he'll love his little boy, he'll love his little girl, and you can't fake that. You can't have a tradecraft that's not real to go after that person. You have to, to believe that yourself for you to project it and get someone to accept it. And Kevin had that ability because he believed it. Kevin had a really genuine, innate ability to translate that he cared for a person. And by virtue of that, that person would give 100% back to him. That's a very abnormal, very unusual capability for a guy to have all of these components in an agent. He was graded extremely high on every piece of that. He was a prototype agent. He had the the best blend of the capability, the physical, the mental agility, but also the head and the heart. If you find all of that in one person, that's a, that's a rare gem. Tinsley pulls him in and says, hey, we want you to head this new operation. 
You're my guy. This is Kevin Pedersen. I had a new supervisor that came in and was given a directive to make this group into a money laundering uh, investigation because it was the other half of the equation. And it was a half of the equation of the drug world that wasn't being attacked. I mean, everybody was going after the cocaine and the marijuana, the physical drug. I mean, it's being offloaded, it's being shipped, it's being cargoized, you know, it's being put across the water, it's being sold out on the street, and everybody's attacking that, and it's right to do that. And those are cases, because everybody's selling it and buying it and trading it. But what was really being attacked is the money, because drug dealers are in, in business to make money. So they can make all the products, and they can sell it, and they can lose some when it gets seized, and that hurts them. But when you hurt, and when you take their money, you're really hurting them. And guess where they can be really exposed? as to where that money's going, because it's got to make itself back to the individual that owns it. It's all being moved around here in the United States. It's all cash, right? All the transactions are in cash. They're making its way all the way up the chain, but some way, somehow, it's got to make it back to the source. The thing to realize here is that the end point of the entire drug process is the street sale. You know, we, we spend so much time talking about the lab, the cooking the cocaine, the loading it on the airplanes or freighters. Dropping and it in the ocean. Dropping it in the ocean, the Bahamas, you know, getting it getting it on boats and getting it into the US. Point B to C. Yeah. But the very last step, and it's as important as all the others, is actually selling it on the street. People are buying the cocaine with cash. You know, they're using dirty, crumpled up bills, fives, tens, twenties, singles. No, no debit machine nor credit card accepted. Here's Agent Tinsley once more. We had guys that were moving enormous amounts of bulk currency every year. I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars. So what we did, we focused on their pattern of life. How do they live? Where do they go? What private banks were they using? What commercial banks were they using? They would throw furniture out of houses to make more room for the money, if you can imagine. Back in the, the heydays of Miami, it was, it was amazing because in the 80s and 90s, guys would go buy a Ferrari, Tesla, a Porsche, whatever, they would pay cash. They would be egg carton baskets into the dealership and literally th throw $150,000 in fives out. Dealership would take it, give them a new car, and they'd drive away. When Kevin was on the street, that was a big deal. What are they gonna do with the money? It's not enough to sell the cocaine. The money has to make it back to Colombia. That's the whole reason the cartels are in this business. Seems very obvious to point that out, but this isn't a normal business. There's no invoices going on. They have to get that money back to Colombia. They have to launder. When we say laundering money, you're legitimizing someone's funds. Kevin explains the importance of laundering cash. I've got $100,000 in drug cash that I just made off a deal. I want to make it legitimized. I want to live in this area and I want to have a real good income that's clean. So I got to clean that money. I've got to somehow bring it back to myself that it looks legitimate. That's a problem, okay? So a lot of people facilitate drug dealers to clean up that money, whether it goes into a bank, whether it moves around into a mortgage, whether it pays down a mortgage and you refinance and it looks clean now. There's a lot of mechanisms of ways to do that. And a lot of people, and I've arrested a lot of people over the years that are in that business who say, well, we weren't doing anything wrong. We're just moving money. Well, you're facilitating the drug transaction because the drug transaction can never occur if you don't take care of the money side of it. So this is just as dirty and just as illegal 
as the drug transaction itself. That's how the traffickers move the money. But how do the authorities attack that entire process? How does the DEA get inside of it? You attack it with informants that have the ability to broker money deals across the country. Most of DEA is powered by informants. Informants that are either have to work in order to reduce their sentences because they've been arrested, or informants that want to make money because we pay rewards, or just because maybe they, they're altruistic and they've decided, you know, I'm going to change my ways and, and I want to help. Those are the ones you have to really look out for. But you have to decide what the motive, motivation is of the individual and then, a, then use that as a, as a tool. You have an informant who has the ability and has laundered money for people in the past and he wants to work for you. So he has to work for you, you've arrested him, okay? So he comes to you and he says, hey, they want me to pick up money for them, whatever organization this is in Colombia, the money's in cash bundles in different parts of the country. Chicago, Houston, LA, New York, Newark, Atlanta. And the cells have the cash, usually stored somewhere, because it's huge amounts of cash. I didn't believe how much until I saw it. They need to take that money in some cases and give it to somebody who can either get it into the banking network safely or buy commodities to have shipped to them, but somehow do something with that cash that it's into the system the banking system if possible, to then get to accounts throughout the world for them. In other words, hey, I need you to pick up a million dollars today in Manhattan. And I need it wire transferred to five different bank accounts. Once you pick up the money, you'll get a notification of which bank accounts to wire transfer the money to. Keep a percentage for yourself for your services, which for us was great because we use those monies to fund our operations. On the street, we would travel with normally an informant that was actually going to do the hand-to-hand -hand pickup, who would, with us on surveillance, receive the cash from the bad guy. New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Houston. Street corners, shopping malls, a duffel bag, a backpack, anywhere from 250000 to $2 million. We'd bring it back to Miami. There'd be a bank that we have a, a, a special arrangement with that we could go to their security vault and uh, give the money to the bank. The bank counts the money and puts it in an account. Put it in the bank. Get the wire transfer information if it was wire transfers they wanted and wire transfer the money to those various accounts. Now that gives us all kinds of intelligence, doesn't it? Because you're getting a lot of information on the actual person that dropped you the money because he's dropping to other people. So there's an investigation right there. And then you'd have all kinds of information based upon those accounts that you sent the money to. And you can start your investigation on all those different accounts. Who did these people think you were? A banker. What name did you use? Kevin Edwards was my name. But the whole thing would start with the bust relating to the drugs themselves. You have to make someone from within the operation vulnerable. The best way to do that is to seize a large amount of dope. That way you have a guy over a barrel. On one hand, he's facing serious prison time. On the other hand, he just lost $50 million of product, so he's responsible to the bosses back in Colombia. Here's former DEA agent David Tinsley again. You have a guy trying to replace $50 million. Most guys have a hard time doing that. Kevin would look at targeting the drug shipment, creating an issue, penetrating the guy who had that accountability, and make that guy come to the table with DEA 
and then drive that guy back into the organization. That's easily said, but getting someone to trust you with their life is very, very hard. And Kevin had that. And, and I think the bad guys saw that in him too. I think they saw they could trust him. To get people to trust him, I think Kevin was merely himself. It wasn't an act. It was, I think he has a genuine concern for people. He had a absolute belief in what he was doing, an unshakable belief in what he was doing. And when you have that, that is translated in the conversation without, it's transliterated in the conversation. People see it and they feel it. Kevin had that ability to bring what's inside of him out in a conversation and make it land not on the guy's ears, but on the guy's heart. That's a big differentiator for an agent to be able to do that. That's Kevin's real strength, not only in the job, but in life. We've spent a lot of time with him. Here's a guy who's always played it straight, but as he grew and matured, he saw the value in encouraging people towards the better side of life. I don't think there's a better way to say it besides the fact that here's a guy who believes in good. Uh, He plays it straight which made him the perfect guy to handle this sort of sensitive operation. Because, you see, when a DEA agent leaves the country, things become particularly sensitive. And Kevin, he didn't handle all those cash drops in the United States alone. This is Kevin. There was one time in particular they wanted cash dropped off in Bogota at a shopping mall, and we took it down there and dropped it off. Took the money down in a a bag on a plane and... And I got picked up at the airport, dropped it off in Bogota, dropped it off to the individual we were supposed to in a shopping mall, and got back on the plane and went back to Miami. The shopping mall looks like any other shopping mall in the United States. And it was in the food court area. We were told that, you know, what the guy would be dressed at and what he'd be wearing, and made telephone communication with him and dropped it. That was $500,000, cash. Some unknown man. Fanulanu, we'd call him. First name unknown, last name unknown. It would be surveillance agents on the ground's job to identify that guy later. That was an interesting one because I don't know if anybody had actually dropped in Bogota like that, but it sure made us look good to the bad guys. And while Kevin is sitting there in the shopping mall food court, he starts to think about his old friend. I was kind of wondering, you know, does he ever go to the food court at the shopping mall? There were other reasons why Kevin might have been thinking about Alex because people in South Florida were beginning to take notice of this really interesting story. There was even an article that mentioned them in the Miami Herald. Here's Kevin again. It was almost like people were proud of him, though. The stories that you get is that, wow, yeah, he's really kicking ass. He's like the top of the game. I guess people probably talked about Capone that way, but that bothered me. It bothered me that it was almost like he was becoming a folklore hero, and I couldn't go into a bar without somebody asking me, have you seen Alex? Remember the submarine that Alex built? Yeah, yeah, it was seized in 2000. Then Wayne and Alex build a second sub. That one went down with Wayne inside. Alex had sunk in so much money into those projects, about five million bucks, and it wasn't just that money, because the subs had taken him away from other money-making operations. So by this point, He's really cash poor, and he's verging on desperation. Alex gets a call. And it's from an old associate who tells him that he knows of a group out of Cali that wants to run an operation. And this group needs Alex's services as a transportation specialist. 
Alex says, sure, let's meet to discuss the particulars. Like, he needs the money. He needs the operation. He needs to get going again. And he tells the guy, oh, yeah, I could also use a loaner, 40, 40 grand. So Alex jumps in his Jeep. It's Medellin. It's 2003. And he heads over to the meeting spot, a popular bakery. He meets up with the contact. They discuss the operation. He gets his $40,000 loan. He hops back in the Jeep and hits the road. Now, on the way home... Alex is driving down Avenida Bolivariana. It's a beautiful tree-lined street in Medellin. And up ahead, he sees a roadblock. Several cop cars, cops on motorcycles, a couple cops in riot gear. And they pull him over. But Alex doesn't really think much about it. Because there are tons of roadblocks in Colombia, and he's been through this a million times. You can always pay off a cop. And he has a fake ID in his wallet. At this point, Alex is going by the name Francisco Cruz. So the police pull him over, and they lead him to the police station. They pop the hood of the Jeep. They're combing through it. Seems like they're looking for something. And Alex notices there's a guy standing off to the side, watching what's going on. So he approaches this guy. He reaches for his wallet to give his driver's license. The fake driver's license. And this cop, who is actually an Interpol agent, says something that gives Alex a real chill. He says, you don't need to give me your license, Alex. And it's the first time anyone has used his real name in many years. And that's when Alex realizes what's going on here. His old contact, the one who suggested they meet to discuss the Cali operation, this guy has set him up. Alex DeCubis had been a fugitive for more than 12 years, and now it was all over. I was sitting in my cube in the embassy in Bogota. Just a normal day, typical day. This is Keith Curtis, the DEA agent who carried the DeCubis case. It was early in the morning, if I recall correctly, and one of the agents sitting behind me, I heard him, uh, he was on a phone conversation with his SIU team, his special investigative unit, vetted police officer team in Medellin. And I heard him mention the name Alex DeCubis. Kind of sat up in my chair and I looked back at him. And he's over there in the corner, he's talking, Alex DeCubis. You guys picked up Alex DeCubis. And I remember saying, uh, tapping him on the shoulder, I says, Alex DeCubis, find out if that's the Cuban guy from Miami, Alex DeCubis. And he asked whoever it was he was talking to. Yeah, Alex DeCubis, they got him. They picked him up last night. After all this time, Keith Curtis springs to life. He has trouble believing what he just heard. He was captured in Medellin. The Colombian police transported him to a precinct in Bogota, near downtown. They called me and said, hey, you want to come see this guy? Yeah, man. Be there in 20. So Curtis goes over to the jail, and he prepares to meet Alex DeCubis for the first time. We walked in. We sat down in a, in a conference room, and they brought him out. When I saw him, I was like, wow, man, he needs to be de-stressed a little bit. He looked kind of worn out. He was calm. He was relaxed, but tired looking. He looked relieved. Alex had been on the run for so long, he had taken so many measures to evade capture, it had really worn on him. Myself and a couple other agents went in to, to sit down with Alex and introduce ourselves and kind of told him what to expect in the next few days. That We were already arranging to send him to Miami, and he understood. I said, oh, by the way, Kevin Peterson told me to tell you hi. He got emotional. He was wiping his eyes. He didn't say anything, but he acknowledged, yeah, that's my friend. I'm going to go home and see him. Things were beginning to come full circle. 
Alex had lived this complete full life back in Miami before he left. Then he chucked it all aside. And it must have been an incredible shock for him to contemplate all those people he used to know. Kevin, most of all, with the idea that he might see them at some point. And here's Kevin, his old buddy, who is now on the other side of this drug war. Keith Curtis continues. It was an airliner, American Airlines, commercial flight. He's cuffed. We're sitting in the very last row in the back. It's a quiet flight. He was absolutely non-confrontational. He was absolutely calm. He was a gentleman. I had always heard he may have been kind of an aggressive guy, imposing, but he was a gentleman. I think he was ready to accept his fate. When I was bringing him back, we just kind of clicked. We kind of hit it off. Just Maybe it's a generational thing. Having uh, carried his case file for so many years in Miami, I feel like I had gotten to know him pretty well. But then when I finally got to meet him, he's just a nice guy. Nice guy that did some bad things. I'm guessing a DEA agent doesn't often say that about a drug trafficker, especially one who operated at such a high level. It was a good moment, you know, because you don't, you don't catch many guys like that. I mean, I've still got a half a dozen that are in the wind. We arrived at Miami Airport, and Paul was waiting, the small entourage of marshals. Paul was, you could tell he was a very proud guy at that moment. He knew we worked hard to get to that, to that point. I remember that, you know, he's smiling, we're smiling, everybody's smiling. I think even Alex was smiling. Smiling? Alex knows he's headed into a very difficult period of life, probably a ton of prison time. But you just get the sense that he was glad that all that running was behind him now. When Alex got caught, we were very excited. I was very satisfied in that we knew he was going to come in here. This is Jim Burke a Boca Raton detective and the head of the NOMAS task force. I have a chance to sit next to him and try to find out what he did for these 12 years. So yeah, it was very fulfilling, very rewarding. But again, it's, it's part of the ongoing case, which was a big case. It was a career case. Alex Dacubis ranked as one of the most prolific drug dealers during that time frame, from 1985 to 19, well, 2004, his arrest. He was involved in a lot of cases, a lot of successful operations. You know, you're talking the importation of in excess of 20,000 kilos, the importation of 20,000 pounds of marijuana, the distribution of quaaludes, the, who knows what else. So he was good. He had a good run. Word made it back to Miami and Alex's old friends. Here's Andrew DeWitt, former wrestling teammate at Palmetto and Georgia. Whenever it was that he got caught and it came up on the internet, I mean, within a few days, the wardrooms were beating. Everybody was like, did you hear Alex got caught and this and that? And you know, everybody was like scrambling for information as to where is he, what's going to happen. Kevin Pedersen, he was floored when he heard the news. I really thought that what we'd hear is that he was dead. I was very surprised that he was arrested and then that he actually showed up in the United States, that he was actually extradited in the United States. I figured even if he was arrested, that would never happen. So that was kind of refreshing in a sense. I was torn because I didn't know who this guy was that was coming. I mean, I wanted to see him, hoping. I mean, I believe in redemption. And I believe that, that people have to be humble for redemption to occur. And I was hoping that whenever I did see him, I would see a humble man 
and kind of that's what my focus was in my mind. I didn't know what I was going to see. I was there for a sentencing, and I didn't know, you know, when he walked out that door, what would he look like? He would find out pretty quickly. Kevin made it to the courtroom for one of Alex's hearings. Kevin is sitting in the gallery, and finally, after 23 years, Alex appears before him. Kevin remembers the moment. When he came out of the doorway, walking out before the judge for his sentencing hearing in the federal courthouse, 2004, an orange jumpsuit, he had handcuffs on. He was a lot more pudgy. His hair had changed quite a bit. Same face, and he looked right at me and smiled. Gave me a little wave with his hand. What did you see in his eyes? I felt remorse. I could sense remorse. And he only looked me in the eye for a minute and then looked down. The Alex of old, or the, the one that was bold, would have stared me right down. Kind of different for him to look down after looking at me. I sensed, and I hoped, that he had made a turn in his heart. I never want to be in that position that he was in. Uh, I hope I never know that. I guess it can, it, it can go one of two ways in that situation. I've, I've had people that I've had handcuffs on who are very indignant, and I've had people that are very humble. And now, Kevin nearly gets involved in the case. I was subpoenaed by his defense attorney to be a possible character witness. You didn't take the stand, though? No, I did not take the stand. Okay. What would you have said if you had taken the stand? I would have said that I knew Alex DeCubis from 1976 and that he was a great athlete, that he was a changed man since 1976 in a very bad way. So I told the defense attorney, be careful what you're asking for from me. When you saw him in the courtroom, did you feel any bond there at all between the two of you? It's funny, you know, I did. A lot of the emotions were back. It wasn't a joyful moment for me. It wasn't a gotcha. Hey, we got him. I was happy for the agency and I was happy for him because I think the alternative was he was gonna be dead. So I think for the best result for him, he was where he was right there. I really felt sad for him. That might be hard for some people to understand. That's an old friend that I had a lot of ties with. That's at his worst moment in his life. Although he's done a lot of bad things and he's a bad guy, he's a bad dude. But I've never rejoiced in <laughs> seeing people fall because we're all capable of falling, I believe that. So I felt sad for him. I mean, it was a, it was a nice end to a chapter I was glad it was over. I'm glad he wasn't dead. Glad he was still alive. And I'm glad he was facing justice. You know, maybe the end of the folklore, because he's not the big monster man that he had been made out to be. He was just a man in handcuffs, in a jumpsuit, who now had to face justice. As a law enforcement officer, there's a lot of rah-rah good in that. But as a friend, which I consider myself a friend, even though I didn't know this man that was standing there now, I still saw the old friend that I had, and I was sad for that. It's a tragic story. The judge hands down the sentence. Alex gets 30 years. He was arrested in 2003, so his release date was sometime in 2033. One of his old wrestling teammates from Palmetto in Georgia, Andrew DeWitt, was thinking the same thing that everyone else was. I thought that this man's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. Thank you for listening to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. 
You can follow Pin Kings on Twitter at ESPN Pin Kings. That's at ESPN Pin Kings. A preview of the next episode follows this message. Next on Pin Kings, episode 16, So Miami. Maybe I was like the prodigal son's brother who was saying, well, wait a minute, Dad, I did everything you ever asked me to do. I did it all. Where's my party? Where's my dinner? Kevin, he's still the all-American kid. I think he sees part of his mission in life is helping other people. Whenever Alex would come to my mind, I often think, how can I help him? He knows he can have a positive influence on Alex. He knows he can do something for Alex that Alex probably can't do for himself, which is pretty powerful. Don't miss an episode. You can listen and subscribe to the Pin Kings podcast in the ESPN app or download and listen on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts.